at the Boston Book Festival, we believe in the power of words to stimulate, agitate, unite, delight, and inspire. Here, keynote speaker Atul Gawande addresses one of the weightiest issues of all, our own mortality, as he talks with WBUR's Meghna Chakrabarti about his book, Being Mortal. Many thanks to Plymouth Rock Assurance for sponsoring this podcast. Hi, everyone. Is everyone having a good time at the Boston Book Festival today? <laughs> good. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Debbie Porter. I'm the founder and executive director of the Boston Book Festival, and I'm so pleased to see you here. <laughs> um, for our nonfiction keynote with Atul Gawande, I'm as excited as you are to hear from, from Atul and um, Meghna. And now I'd like to introduce um, our host for today's session, Meghna Chakrabarty. She is um, the host of Radio Boston on WBUR 90.9 FM. Thank you. Thank you. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Let me just give the full, it's going to take a little bit of time because the man sitting to my left is unbelievably accomplished, but I do want to give him a robust introduction. Uh, he is, of course, Dr. Atul Gawande, written a number of best-selling books, National Book Award winner. You've probably read Complications. Uh, ben- only a finalist on that. Oh, only a finalist on that one. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> See, he's also a precise doctor. You'll never get, the, you'll never get an incorrect diagnosis from him. Uh, he's also author of Better, and he, um, is, he's a, a practicing surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital, frequent contributor to the New Yorker magazine, um, and a professor at Harvard Medical School as well. And of course, today we are here because of his book, Being Mortal, which, by the way, if you don't already have after today's conversation, it is available for sale uh, uh, as you exit um, the church, the sanctuary today. Um, so first of all, Dr. Gawande, welcome. You can call me a tool. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Well, first of all, I just wanted to start off with the obvious observation that we are all going to die. That regardless of gender, race, creed, affluence, orientation, even ge- genes... We're all going to die. There's a 100% probability, for now at least. <laughs> so imagine how taken aback I was when in your book I read that basically the system that we have prepared to deal with this inevit- inevitability, you, you write that it, we've built a medical system and culture around the long tail of those people who might live longer than average, and we've created a multi-trillion dollar edifice for dispensing the medical equivalent of lottery tickets. So 100% probability of a certain outcome, but the way we deal with that is equivalent to chance. Why did you put it that way? Um, The motivation for even writing the book started with the fact that I felt like as a surgeon, I didn't even know what it meant to be competent at dealing with the big unfixables. Like, you know, the first part of my writing career, I started writing when I was um, in surgical training. And of course the puzzle there was we knew you know, how do you take out an appendix? Like, there are known ways to take out an appendix. And I was still struggling with, how do I even deal with the fact that I make mistakes? And how do I learn to do this along the way? And how do I deal with my own imperfections? And how do we deal with the fact that, in fact, all of us in medicine are imperfect? And then over time, as I became more confident in my ability to deal with the problems that there are fixes for, which is to say, I just became more confident in the fact that I'm imperfect. Um, what I realized was there were large numbers of people who I would see on a regular basis who I was not going to make better. And invariably you come to that place and what I could offer and what I did offer was saying, well, I can do something. And surely doing something is better than doing nothing. But over and over again what I'd find is I might do that last-ditch operation. We might put you in that intensive care unit. And people would suffer. Uh, And then in the last decade or so, there's been more and more studies showing that not only do people suffer, when we inflict that last-ditch chemotherapy, that last operation, 
your week you're most likely to have an operation in your life is the last week of your life. And you can imagine that if we um, do that operation, that's a moment when you'll get all the pain, all of the complications, but you won't have time to heal and have any of the benefit. Now, if I knew which week was that last week of your life, it'd be much easier. (laughs) And so the puzzle that I was trying to unravel in the course of the book was understanding, okay, so we, um, we say, well, there's the, the long tail, is the possibility that maybe you're that one in a hundred that might benefit from that, even though 99 in a hundred we make worse off. So how do we, what's it mean to be competent in that situation? And it's really sort of a national discussion. What do we all want to have happen in that moment? And that was what I wanted to probe. And, and so let's talk about it uh, vis-a-vis some specific people. Fact check me here for a second, because I think it actually, was it in one of your New Yorker articles that I read that Stephen Jay Gould, when he was, he received his diagnosis, one of the first things he did is he did all the research under the sun to find out what the possibilities were for uh, uh, the prognosis. He wrote wrote a fantastic essay that I I described called The Median is Not the Message. That's right. And he developed a rare, generally fatal a cancer called a peritoneal mesothelioma. And, you know, they told him about the median survival, which was under a couple years. But when he, you know, he was a, a naturalist. And as a naturalist, what he was interested in was the variation, not the median. And so that's why his essay was called The Median is Not the Message. And when he looked at the, the curve of survival, what he saw was there was this long tail. And he could imagine himself in that long tail. And he went through um, a pretty aggressive form of chemotherapy and surgery, and in fact ended up in that long tail. He lived more than 19 years and ultimately did not die from that cancer. He died from a different cancer. Um, and you know what I what I basically came to say is, you know, every time after reading that essay, I would see a patient who was uh, had a you know potentially well a terminal condition. I would think of Stephen Jay Gould and could we imagine ourselves in the long tail? But the flip side was, um, are we prepared for the possibility that you are not in the long tail? What does it mean to not get to win that lottery ticket? And, you know, hope is not a plan. So, you know, the, the basics of some of the ideas that have emerged around how to do well in these circumstances is the equivalent of, Hope for the best, prepare for the worst. Mm-hmm. And then what does that mean? So, so before we get to the what does that mean part, I do want to just probe a little more about the, the potency and the power of the just very understandable urge that all or most of us have to think that we will be the Stephen Jay Goulds. We will be the outlier. Because... Um, uh, you, you write very beautifully and eloquently about your own father... Uh, and um, and how he died, and what a I mean his actually his death was probably better than than most people or many people have, uh, but there is a point at which he he was suffering very greatly, and um, he does end up back in the hospital because your mother had to call an ambulance and take him to the hospital. And what 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 struck me about that is you, your mother, and your father all physicians. And, and there's a question about whether or not sending him back to the hospital at that late stage in his illness was the best idea. And yet it happened. Right. The, um, so my father developed, he's, he was a surgeon. He developed a brain tumor um, in his brain stem and his spinal cord. And it was a slow-growing cancer. Um, but it was in a place that it could not be removed. And as we progressed with his care, the puzzle was... Well, I'll come back to, you know, I feel like the book was my exploration of how I was taking care of my patients, but without question in the background was that I was also thinking about my dad and how we were going through over several years the course of his illness and trying to understand what it meant to, to, um, to be aggressive at the right time but not aggressive at the right time with, with his care. As he neared the end of his life, he actually did make decision that, you know what, pain is the most important thing as far as I'm concerned. Do not let me be in pain. And he was in hospice 
in his last several months, um, when he uh, when he was near the very end, the last couple of weeks, the amount of pain medication required would lead him to stop breathing for these long periods in time, and it scared my mother. And she, instead of calling hospice, where the focus would be on um, make sure that his pain is taken care of, even if he stops breathing, uh, she called 911. They revived him, took him to the hospital, took him to his own hospital, um, where both he and my mother had practiced. And his own colleagues would not give him pain medicine because he would stop breathing. And he was in such severe pain and so angry about it that he signed himself out of the hospital, um, got himself home, and took me aside and said, promise me you will keep giving me the pain medication, even if I'm not breathing. And my mother still feels guilty to this day. She feels like it was um, the right thing because the family could gather around him, and we were there for the last few days. Uh, And it also was speaking to her, her inability to, you know, in that moment, that was about her. And that's some of the reality of the care along the way. You know, two-thirds of patients accept treatments they do not want because the family wants it. Mm-hmm. So what did you learn from, from that experience as a, as a physician, as part of the, the, the medical system, and, and as a family member? Well, it really preceded that in many ways because along the course of writing the book, I ended up interviewing more than 200 patients and families about their experiences with life-threatening, uh, well, well, with terminal conditions or serious disabling infirmities with aging. And then I also interviewed scores of people who took care of lots of folks like that um, in those circumstances, geriatricians, palliative care specialists, hospice nurses and doctors, uh, nursing home aides, nursing home directors, uh, ICU doctors, cancer specialists, and the ones who were really good at handling these situations, handling them in ways that I wasn't handling them, I came to realize that they had some very basic observations. One key thing was understanding that people have goals in their lives besides just living longer. You know, we take for granted that people's first goal is their health and their survival. But in fact, we all make choices every day where we take risks because we live for something larger than just our survival. And what we live for is different from person to person. You might live for your children. You might live to be home. You might, you know, it, it's quite, uh, it, it varies enormously. So the second thing is that um, you have to learn what people's goals and priorities are. And the most important way you learn is you ask them. <laughs> And we don't ask. Less than, in, in studies, less than a third of the time when people come to their death, have the clinicians ask them what is most important in their lives, what matters to them most as they face a short time. And families are also unlikely to ask those questions. When you don't ask, the result is suffering because the care, what you're doing for people, often ends up out of alignment with what they actually care about and want. And what I've learned along the way was how to ask. You know, because the question, okay, fine, we'll ask. You know, you ask people, well, so what matters to you most? And they say, well, I don't know. <laughs> and it's really, there's an art that people who are good at dealing with the situations that they ask a few questions that, um, you know, are, are um, pretty simple. Things like, well, tell me what your understanding is of where you are with your condition at this time or your health at this time. What are your fears and worries for the future? What are your goals and priorities if your health worsens? What are you willing to go through and what are you not willing to go through for the sake of more time? And what's the minimum level of life you would consider worth living for? So when I asked my dad these questions, I told him the story of one of my colleagues um, here in town whose father told her when she asked him this, um, you know, if I can eat chocolate ice cream and watch football on television, that'd be good enough for me. <laughs> Keep me going as long as I can do that. So I said, you know, chocolate ice cream, football on television, how about that, Dad? And he's like, that is not good enough for me. <laughs> for him, 
at first, you know, it changed over time. In the beginning, he was a surgeon. He knew this tumor was there, and he said, what matters to me is I want to keep on being a surgeon as long as I possibly can. And so we chose treatments and a pathway that was very aggressive but was careful not to sacrifice that chance of being able to still operate while he could. When the tumor advanced and he became paralyzed in his hand, and it's like trying to take the keys away from grandpa, like you gotta stop operating with that paralyzed hand. Oh, but the nurse puts on the glove just fine. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Then he thought life was over, but he realized what he really loved was being, at, um, being able to be at the dinner table, connecting. He was tremendously social. He always had a dinner party once or twice a week. You know? So being at the dinner table with family or friends and being able to have conversation and be connected, that was really important. And so w- we went through treatments that even as he became paralyzed, uh, as long as he could get to that dinner table, that's what mattered. But he did not want to move to a nursing home. He did not want a feeding tube. And when it reached the point that the therapy, he started on trying chemotherapy, and it made him too exhausted to even get to the table, that was when he said no more. And we said, you know, we stopped the therapy he was on, went on hospice. He actually got stronger, spent five months on hospice. He was a person and not a patient. And the focus was on keeping him strong, having his pain under control. And he led a full life in those last five months. And, uh, and I think that's the critical thing that I learned was not asking my patients, do you want to fight or do you not want to fight? It's what are we fighting for? What are your fears? What are we trying to avoid? What are we trying to, and uh, what are we trying to deliver on? And that's been the thing that suddenly made it feel very different being able to handle and understand what to do in these situations. You know, this is a moment for us to actually give acknowledgement to uh, the fact that, uh, you know, we are living in, in a city where um, Ellen Goodman and the Conversation Project are trying to do a lot to get, um, you know, families and loved ones and friends to, t- to have these co- exact kind of to conversations. To make it normal. To make it normal. Um, to the point where they have a lovely handbook that actually helps you because how do you, how do you start these conversations? So I just wanted to give a... Uh, a tip of the hat to the conversation. Fantastic project, project. yeah. Um, but if I could just return to a moment where, uh, that you were talking about earlier, how your father's own colleagues, when that moment where he was hospitalized, um, that they, uh, they chose a course of treatment that they thought was best, even though it was absolutely in opposition to his wishes. Because that is a nex- that's a nexus in which uh, it's so very, very important because you know, you have the wishes of the patient, the wishes of the families, which may not always overlap. And then you have the entire ethos of medicine. The whole momentum, yeah. So, I mean, everything from the fact that, you know, perhaps medical education is training um, in this direction, uh, medical training is changing in this direction today. But, you know, you, you write that when you were getting your medical degree, you know, even have, having those conversations wasn't part of what you did. And also just doctors don't go into the business to help people die. They go into the business to help people live. So Yeah, so th- th- this, was, this was really crucial, and, I, and I was, it took me a long time to work my way through it. And in the course of my interviews, I interviewed a person who I think gave me a much better handle hold on this. is a woman who's a psychologist at Stanford named Laura Karstensen. And she's been doing these studies that have gone on now for more than 25 years, where she's been following people as they age. And Bear with me. This is, this is a little convoluted, but it, it, it's been an important framework to me. Um, they were age 18 to 94 when she started following them. And she, would, uh, she has followed them now for more than 25 years. You know, some, many have died along the way. And what she learned along the way was that as they got older, um, they became less healthy, no surprise. Their abilities would decline, they'd lose certain functions in their life. Um, And they got happier. And that's really interesting to me. You know, at age 70, you're likely to have less anxiety, less depression, be calmer about your life than you are in your 40s. And 
that flies in the face of many things that we think of because when we think about um, aging and the future, we live in great fear of aging. We generally believe that um, the highest goal that we have in society should be your health and your independence. And certainly in medicine, I don't, I'm not in medicine saying, hey, as people come to the end of their life, what I want to do is make sure they're flogged with every bit of technology that we have where I'm not satisfied. <laughs> my, but if you flipped it around and said, you know, my goal, my number one priority for people is that they are healthy. I would have said, yeah, absolutely, that's, that's my job. My ethos is your health. But it doesn't fit with a world where people age and become frail and have terminal illness. And what we're missing that Carstensen has helped shown is that well-being is bigger than just your health and survival. It was very interesting in the course of her studies, she would find, you know, the puzzle is as people got older and they got, they also became less focused on uh, acquisition, on owning stuff, you know, getting, having, achieving. They became much more focused on a tighter group of people and having deeper, more intimate connections with those they loved. Their social networks narrowed, um, but their sense of connection to people often deepened. And that's just wisdom, right? As you get older. So then why does it take so long to get wise? <laughs> and the theories that people had are that, you know, your brain has to change, and there's sort of, you know, it's the, it's the, it's, it's the pruning of different kinds of networks in your brain, or maybe it's you have to have experience as you get older of, of um, you know, the various disappointments there are in life. But she proved it was all wrong because there was a group of people in her study, this is Northern California, around 1990 when she started, and HIV AIDS was uh, um, hitting that population hard and there weren't the same kinds of treatments we have now. And as that population, there were young people in her study, and they would shift from the young signature to the old signature as they became terminally ill. They would actually focus, their, focus on a smaller group of people. They often had a sense of greater purpose and greater calm, less anxiety, less depression. It's sort of contrary to your thinking. And, the, um, and then 9-11 happened. And everybody went from the young signature to the old signature. They wanted to be with their families. They wanted to be more connected because there was a time of uncertainty and fragility in their life. And then three months later, everybody went back to the our old way of being. <laughs> well, the, what it means for us in medicine is that we have to understand we're not just fighting for people's health and survival, we're fighting for their well-being. And well-being means different things to different people. We have to ask what that notion of well-being is and make sure we know what are we sacrificing in the course of treatment that could actually eliminate the things that are the reasons people want to be alive in the first place. So this is very, very, very hard, though, right? Because, I mean, you, you write, I have to say, with, uh, with bracing uh, clarity and, and courage about times when, you know, with your own patients, it's been difficult to, to step back and think of well-being writ large, right? Because, I mean, you write about Sarah Monopoly, um, who was a, I mean, she was young, right? She was in her mid-30s? 34 years old, yeah. diagnosed with, with advanced lung cancer in the eighth month of her pregnancy with her first child. A, you know, totally heartbreaking situation. And then, um, you know, emergency delivery for the baby, start immediately on chemotherapy, and is found to have a second cancer, a metastasizing thyroid cancer in her neck that she then was seeing me about, can you operate to take care of this cancer? And what I knew, but didn't know how to talk about, was that thyroid cancer would never hurt her before the lung cancer had killed her. And that she would suffer more complications from an operation to take care of the thyroid cancer than if, um, than if I just left it alone. But how to even talk about that? Well, you, with this incredibly optimistic family and not wanting to take away that hope that, you know, maybe she will win the lottery ticket. Maybe there is an experimental therapy that could make the difference here. And, uh, you know, it was part, I was writing about it because this was part of when I started trying to figure out what would it mean to 
to be able to take care of her differently. I mean, if I may, you, again, I would say with great courage, you, you admit that, you know, you even raise, this is, you write, I even raised with her the possibility that an experimental therapy could work against both her cancers, which was sheer fantasy. Totally true. I, I took the easy way out. I was like, she was on, a, I was on, she was on an experimental therapy. I didn't want to operate. And so I, I would say, hey, maybe it's going to work on both cancers. And that just was not true. <laughs> and I don't know if I was deluding myself or deluding them, but you know, I would sidestep it by saying, hey, why don't I see you in six weeks? We don't want to stop the therapy for the, for the lung cancer. So let's just come back and see where we are six weeks from now. And each time she'd be a little sicker, you know, she'd need oxygen. The next time I'd see her, the time after that, she'd be in a wheelchair. The time after that, she'd have tubes in her sides, draining fluid accumulating from her lung cancer. And her, lung ca and her, and her neck cancer would be growing. Uh, we didn't do as well as I think we could have by her. Um, I wish I had known what I knew now, which is to have asked her, what are your biggest fears at this point? What's your understanding of where you are with your health? What are you willing to sacrifice? What are you not willing to sacrifice along the way? And I think we would have then been much clearer about which way we were going. But her husband talked about, you know, by the end she was so debilitated by the treatment she couldn't physically hold her baby which was the thing that mattered to her most. Isn't this part of what makes it so very difficult, though? Because as you write in the book, there's always something that a, that a physician can do, that a medical team can do, that a hospital can do. There's always some treatment, whether or not it's efficacious right. or even directly related to, to the illness at hand. We can always put you on a ventilator. It gets us back to stage. hope isn't a, great, isn't a great plan, but it's hard not to feel hopeful when you know, someone like Atul Gawande says, let's try this. But that's why the conversation makes such a huge difference. And it makes a huge difference in multiple ways because when we finally did have that conversation with her, it was very clear that, um, so the fortune, you know, as her breathing worsened and then um, the next questions were, would you go on a ventilator? Would we um, put in a feeding tube? Those kinds of things. We finally did have the discussions that said, you know, what matters and what doesn't matter. I wish we'd had it much sooner as a team, but then it became clear that living a life on a machine, being unable to be connected to other people, being in pain, what she cared about most was being able to interact with her child and her family. Being, the thing she did not want to sacrifice was that ability along the way. And, um, you know, in the documentary um, that uh, I think we mentioned, I'd done a, a film uh, based on being mortal for PBS Frontline, and we followed people for a long time. And you, there's one scene where the, there's a woman we've been following for a long time, and, and the clinicians had not asked what she really wanted. And she's in the hospital now. She's become desperately short of breath, difficult for her to, to continue to take respirations, and finally... The team asked her, you know, well, what would you want? And she said, well, before I go, I want to have that one chance. I want to take my grandchildren to Disney. And it was painful because it was obvious that she was never going to take those grandchildren to Disney. And it was too late. And we could totally have made that possible along the way. But instead, you know, she died within 48 hours after that. And it was heartbreaking. And that was the biggest difference, was that early on with my father and with a bunch of other patients whose story I tell, uh, and friends, including my daughter's piano teacher, we began to ask, I began to ask, what are, what are, what are you fighting for? What matters most? What should we not sacrifice along the way? And you could not only make sure you're not forgetting those things, but you could actually fight for those things. You could make things possible with the kinds of capabilities that we have as people come to the end. I didn't expect to spend half the book writing about um, 
nursing homes and, mm -hmm. and the aged. But you start to see the painfulness of this disjunction when, when you visit people who, you know, start to need a wheelchair. They're starting to have falls, things like that, and they get put into a nursing home, and suddenly you can't have a drink anymore at night <laughs> because it's not safe. Where I'd meet an 85-year-old woman with Alzheimer's disease who's ordered to eat a pureed-only diet, you know, goop, because otherwise it's not safe, and she was hoarding cookies. She was caught by the administration, and they wrote her up. <laughs> you know, you're living in a place where you can get written up. <laughs> and what you want to say is, let her have the damn cookies. <laughs> because you're losing sight of, here's a person who only has a certain amount of time in their life, and what are the joys that they have? And what is it that we are actually keeping you safe and healthy for? And you have to ask people or observe them and learn from what you see. And, you know, it happens not just in the last few weeks of life. It happens from the moment you need help in your life. And on average, now, you know, we're lucky. We survive childhood illness. We survive childbirth. We survive trauma. We survive heart disease and other things. We, we, most, the vast majority of us in this room will get to be old and frail, and that's incredibly lucky. That is a, an, an accomplishment in our time. And we will have, you know, on average about a decade where we will have chronic illness or conditions that matter. Laura Carstensen's work show that you don't, doesn't mean you have to be suffering and unhappy. The only time in her work that people became unhappier as they got older was when they were institutionalized. So when you need help living in places that begin to recognize what it means for you to be in charge, just because you're in a wheelchair doesn't mean you can't be in charge. Just because you have dementia does not mean that your wishes and, your, um, and what you care about do not matter. And that, I think, is the incredible paradigm shift. That is the transformation. Not only do we as Americans not like to think about death, we don't even like to think about getting old, right? So this, this is, <laughs> this is a, an, a transformation that, that's fighting against a lot of very deep-seated currents uh, you know, amongst us as individuals and a culture. But I, you know, part of it I think that we got wrong is that the whole discussion has been like, how do we accept that we're getting old and how do we accept death? Like, I don't really accept my death. <laughs> like, I'm not looking forward to it. I'm really freaked out about the fact that I'm going to turn 50 this year. Um, you know, like, I don't like it. <laughs> but that's not the issue. I don't, you don't need to get me to like it. <laughs> I think the problem is that the goal is not a good death. The goal is a good life, as good a life as possible, all the way to the very end. And just simply asking people and being clear with people when they need help about what a good life is to them. And it, and it varies enormously. I was in uh, New Zealand and getting to meet the Ministry of Health. And so, you know, my favorite questions become, you know, what's the minimum quality of life that you would like if you were alive? <laughs> and, and so, and so I, you know, I say, you know, to him, I said, is it your family getting to be with your kids? He's like, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but getting to, to have my books, that for him is what mattered. You know, you talk to other people and they live for you know, ideals, like they're fighting for, for justice, or, you know, they have a, a school that they're trying to build, or they just want to be there for the, to take their grandchildren to Disney. And that's about asking not, you know, will you just accept your death? That's asking what, where you are now, with the cards that you are dealt, what matters to you? And that I find, to my surprise, has been this, the most gratifying part of being a doctor, you know, is often conversations with people where we may not be operating. Like for me, you know, there's nowhere that, better than an operating room. And now I'm finding it, that there's a sense of gratification that comes from being able to walk through a path where we decide, oh, this is what really matters to you. And now I can offer you some recommendations that give us a better shot at getting there. So we've been, uh, this conversation has dwelled uh, quite a bit in the realm of the head and the heart. I want to hit the wallet for a second. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, we can, 
we can have these conversations and think about ideally how we want to have a good life until the end, but we're also living in a system where uh, it's set up such that, quite frankly, it's just e insurance covers certain things, doesn't cover other things. I mean, there, there are very practical uh, obstacles towards getting to this, this place that you're talking about where, where our mortality isn't quite, the fact of our mortality is not so fraught. Well, I mean, you know, the favorite figure that we go to is that 25% of spending for people over 65 is in the last year of their life. So 25% of the entire healthcare budget is on the last year of people's lives on Medicare. And the majority of that is just in the last few months. And, um, and so that becomes the wallet issue. And what we imagine is that this is a debate. And the reason why it became a whole death panels debate was the supposition that the whole discussion is, will you get your $80,000 drug they'll give you two more months of life or not? But there was a study done here in Boston by a team at the Mass General Hospital that I think gave a lie to it. And this was just the best done of a bunch of studies that have been out there. They took stage four lung cancer patients. They lived on average 11 months. Um, stage four lung cancer is where it's spread already and it's um, not curable. Uh, now, they randomized those patients to have half of them get the usual oncology care and the other half to get the usual oncology care plus seeing a palliative care specialist right from the beginning of their illness who would talk to them about their goals and wishes if their health, health worsens. And what's striking is that the group who got the early palliative care discussions ended up choosing to stop their chemotherapy earlier. So they were less likely to go on to say the fourth round of chemotherapy. They had fewer days in the hospital, fewer days in the ICU, less likely to die in the hospital, started hospice sooner, had less suffering at the end of life, had one-third lower costs of their care, and they lived 25% longer. I mean, if it was an FDA drug, it would be a multi-billion dollar drug. And what it was was just having an expert, difficult conversation about what mattered to them most. And they were often the ones drawing the lines. It wasn't anybody else who was saying, you know, if I reach this point, I'm losing things that matter to me, and I will not want to sacrifice those. And when we're just inflicting that $80,000 drug as the fourth round of therapy out of hope or fantasy, you get all of the toxicity, all of the suffering, all of the pain, and little benefit. Right. And that's where the opportunity comes and where you know, the wallet issues, in this case, line up well. Uh, we don't want to skimp at the end of life, but we do want to get treatments right where we are actually matching them to what matter to people. Yeah. Well, um, in the last couple of minutes of our conversation here, uh, I just want to share, wanted to share with you briefly sort of three... Uh, passings that, that touched my life. Mm. One of them was uh, a beloved aunt of mine. She had multiple myeloma. Uh, she died in the hospital uh, and probably got way, way more treatment than she ever wanted, but my family, we'd never really had that conversation with her. So it was a pretty, uh, it's, your, it's your, your textbook, not good death. On the flip side, she got her wish and her body was donated to science. So hopefully, hopefully a young medical student learned something from uh, her death. Another aunt of mine um, recently passed away in hospice care. So that was far more along the lines of her wishes. But many years ago, the one I wanted to really ask you about is a, is, was a close family friend. My, uh, I grew up in Oregon and my parents still live there. And this, friend of my, uh, this family friend of ours uh, had ALS. And, you know, from the moment he was diagnosed, that he and his family sat down and had that conversation. And, and as, as most, if not all of you know, physician-assisted suicide is legal in Oregon. Um, it was the first state, I believe, to pass that law. And, and in the end, when he reached the point that, that he had decided previously, once he crossed that line, that he was going to go through the process, he did. And... Um, 
I wasn't there, but my, my mother and father were there, and they told me later that it was one of the most incredible and beautiful things they had ever seen. I mean, he was, he was gravely, gravely ill. Uh, and he went through all the, obviously all the protocols regarding uh, mental health and not being um, uh, pushed into doing it, etc. So I have to say, when my parents told me that, it, I had never really given it as much thought, except when my father said it was beautiful, because it was exactly what Vijay wanted. So it really changed my mind about it. Yeah. And I'm wondering, like, when it comes to knowing when to let go, I mean, how do you see physician-assisted suicide playing a role in that? So I'm deeply ambivalent about it. Um, on the one level, what I'd say is that where people have unavoidable deep suffering, that, um, that it's understandable that people would want to have the choice to stop the suffering even if it ends and end their life. Um, what troubles me is that the goal is not a good death. The goal is as good a life as possible all the way to the very end. And what we know is that um, avoidable suffering is a problem that we often don't address in, in, along the way. You know, my father being in pain. We can treat pain nearly all, nearly all the time. And if he'd have gotten all of the treatment all the way to the end, it may have stopped him breathing, um, but he would have been without pain and that would have been the, the peaceful thing. And in fact, he did end up with that peaceful course in the last few days of his life. Um, and so my concern is, you know, that we still are not... Um, uh, well, let me, let me unwrap it in a few ways. India has a whole assisted death movement right now, uh, and there's legislation about trying to make it allowable. But it's also a place where you cannot get narcotics outside of hospitals. And so you have people who, after orthopedic surgery or abdominal surgery, they're going home on Tylenol. And so you can imagine if you're in cancer pain like my dad had, you aren't getting the morphine treatments and things that he was able to get. And then when you're in severe pain, would you rather have assisted death? Absolutely. Um, the suffering that we... Uh, so this is the way I look at it. I see every assisted death as ultimately a sign of our failure to alleviate suffering. And that we, number one, uh, need to make sure we are able to treat pain and alleviate suffering uh, where we can, and we are not doing that nearly consistently enough along the way. You know, hospice, for example, is usually in the, just in the last few days of life, and people go through tremendous suffering towards the end of life, and we need to move that up. The second is that in Oregon and other places where that they've offered it, simply giving people the choice, it, it clearly reflects fear of suffering that comes because the majority do not end up using their prescription. In some way, it's a relief to know it's there as a possibility as you come to the end so that if the suffering gets beyond what you can manage, you can alleviate it. But Oregon happens to be a place where also there is tremendously strong palliative care and hospice focus so that people are working towards being able to make sure that that is there. And so it's been less than 1% of the population that's ended up choosing it. And then the last part that is the part that concerns me is so in the Netherlands where it originated, um, more than 3% of the population now die through assisted, assisted death. And um, it's beginning to be used in children and in people with simple depression. And um, the worry in my mind is when it becomes something where, you know, there's starting to be a significant percentage of people who see their, one of their major reasons is that they fear that they're a burden on their family and that's their suffering. And that's what I don't want to see. So long story short, you know, I say in the book that I, in the end, support assisted death for those who have unavoidable suffering. But I'm concerned that that is not, should not be the center of our focus is on producing assisted death. It should be on producing assisted life when we're not providing that assistance nearly adequately as people face the end. This has been really uh, eye-opening and wonderful conversation, but also 
sobering. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like a Saturday afternoon talking, talking about death. Talking about right? death. <laughs> um, Only so, in Boston. <laughs> to a packed house. Uh, so let's, let's end on a, on a slightly, or slightly more positive note. In your, in your research and... Death is not a failure, Magna. <laughs> <laughs> well, was a, a systemically positive, more positive, though, go. rather than, than the, the fact of death. But, you know, I mean, you've traveled all around the world. You've talked to many, many people. You've seen organizations who are trying different things. I mean, give us an example or, of, or two of, you know, places, cultures, people who are doing it right. Well, one of the places, you know, I get to write about a bunch of these, but um, uh, since I'm tethered to my surgical practice, a lot of them are sort of within, within Route 128. And... <laughs> And one of the places I went is up in Chelsea. It's a place uh, called the Florence Center for Living, and it's a it's a greenhouse, and it's as they call it, and it's it's building what um, what care for people as you face frailty and aging could really look like when you start thinking about people's wishes. So you know, as you, you visit assisted living facilities and other places, they look like hospitals. They're long quarters. They're built around a nurse's station, and instead, this is a place where there's no more than 12 people, they're built around, not a nursing station, but around a kitchen, single rooms, you're not put with a stranger, you know, I describe my wife's grandmother dying, Alice Hobson, uh, her last two years in a nursing home, much of it um, with a roommate not of her choice, in a, you know, with none of your furniture, with only a cabinet that can hold your belongings, being in the institutionally prescribed uniform. What does this sound like to you? Prison. Wake up at seven for the pill line. You know, she would, I would see her and every time she would say, when do I get, to, when can I go home? And it would just break your heart. And when I visit people at the Florence Center, they are home. They would call it, this is my home. They have their own rooms. Majority of them are on Medicaid, so this is not, you know, for the wealthy. They, um, they have, uh, they can wake up when they want, go to bed when they want. They, um, they have their own life. And just because you're in your wheelchair does not mean you cannot have that idea of your own life. Well, before we go to questions, I just actually have a couple questions to ask all of you. How many, raise your hand if you think you could clearly articulate what matters most to you in your life right now. It's like 60%-ish. Not bad. How many of you have, have talked about what matters most to you in your life with someone you love or someone who might be in a position to make decisions for you? About okay. 30%. 30. Numbers are dropping here. How many of you... Now promise <laughs> to think about these questions and to have that conversation with people in your life. With the person who will make the decision. The person who will make can. the decision. Oh, that's good. 70%. 70%. <laughs> One day we'll get that's it to 100%. Okay, well, well, good. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Gwande, thank you so much. So obviously we've got a ton of people who want to talk with you. Now, um, this is also where the true radio person in me is going to come out because we have 11 minutes. Okay. Magna, I'm very glad you brought up an ALS patient in Oregon because most patients with ALS are not in physical pain. And what I'd like Dr. Gawande to talk about is people who feel they have almost no quality of life, but they're not in physical pain. And maybe they're paralyzed, maybe they're on a ventilator, it could be ALS, it could be a number of things that have severely diminished their quality of life, and they tell you, I've had enough, I want to let go. What do you say to them? Yeah, so there's a couple of things. We're actually studying right now, um, one of our team members, that are, I'm part of a, um, a group called Ariadne Labs, which is a a center for health system research and innovation. And we have a group that's studying a lot around end of life. And we've been interviewing people who are in long-term facilities with ALS and um, long-term ventilators and things like that. And the fascinating thing is, number one, you can have these discussions with the vast majority. 
and people hadn't even begun to have these conversations. And so, you know, there, and then because no one's having these conversations, no surprise, they're reporting tremendously poor quality of life. And so part of my answer is, as I said earlier, I, um, you know, I, I come out saying that I do think that for people who are really facing unavoidable suffering, and that can be one form of that suffering, that assisted death is something that I think should be offered. I say it with some hesitation because I want to see that we don't slip down the slippery slope, et cetera. But uh, I can see the ways where the suffering could be unavoidable and um, relieved best through that option. That said, I also think we've been ignoring what a quality of life could be for those folks for a tremendously long time. At the Florence Center for Living is a whole section for people living in ALS. And the quality of life that you see them providing for people there is extraordinary. And those are people having those conversations regularly and who have reasons to live. And they're not asking that, they're, uh, that they be put to death. That, I think, is the fundamental thing that we understand. It is unimaginable for nearly all of us to live in the state that the folks that I met in the Florence Center for Living are living in. Um, and then unimaginable that they could have things that they love and do every day, including working, including um, uh, participating in uh, having friends, having family, having you know, a life that they value tremendously. Um, I think Stephen Hawking has showed us that as well. So um, it's with hesitance that I say, you know, ALS does not equal. Um, I think we have imagined that if you have a terminal cancer, you have ALS. I think our imagination of how a life worth living could be possible has escaped us instead of exploring how for many it can be. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for this conversation. And what feels so refreshing is the enlightenment you bring in regard to the whole question of, of death and dying. But I almost feel like it's a teaspoon against an ocean. Um, my wife had a major stroke nine years ago. She's here today as well. Um, and, you know, when we first had it, uh, the stroke in Vermont, she was very critically ill, and I had had one conversation with an ethicist at a Vermont hospital. But since then, um, and even last year when she was very sick, the only conversation I've had with, with doctors are, do you want to sign a do not resuscitate order? It's sort of so blank and not really talking about quality of life or any of those. It's just, and you know, we've had multiple hospitalizations where we've had that chance of having that conversation. Unfortunately, we're both kind of more aware of it. And also, you know, the whole conversation that happened a couple of years ago in regard to the death panels. So I, it feels very discouraging that there isn't this level of conversation going on, especially within the medical community. And I was wondering what your, your thoughts were about that. Yeah, you know, I think we, um, it's the, it partly reflects the same kind of ignorance that I feel like I had going into writing the book. Um, the voices of people like geriatricians and palliative care physicians who think about not just how to extend life, but how do I create quality of life, is that they've got this incredible range of skills and we're not exposed to it. You know, in general, I, I was not taught by a palliative care physician or a geriatrician or people with those skills. That's changing. They're now actually getting airtime during medical school and during training, and I think that's going to... Um, that's starting to happen. But the biggest reason that I wrote the book for a general public instead of as a medical article was my belief that it was going to come ultimately from both the public and people within healthcare um, dealing with what we all see every day as um, a kind of inhumanity in the way we deal with people facing serious illnesses and serious infirmities. Um, that there's been this as I referred to the other person, this lack of imagination about how a life could be worth living in the face of illness and in the face of 
uh, severe disability. And I've, that's where, for me, the work of Laura Carstensen and others has really opened my thinking because you start thinking about well-being and you realize it's bigger than health and survival. There's a great um, uh, book that I dis described by a, a Harvard philosopher named Josiah Royce writing in the 19th century where he puzzled over why people find life worth living um, or why they find a life, life to be inadequate when it's only that you're healthy and comfortable and safe and alive. And what he uh, came to the conclusion was that people, we all live for something larger than ourselves. And that's what he called our loyalty. Your loyalty may be that you live for your children or you live for your family or you live for your country or you live for an ideal like justice or you live for beauty and creativity or you live for God. But that and understanding what that is for you and for your wife and then how we make sure we preserve your chance at serving at, at, at um, being able to serve that loyalty. That's what is, in, is uh, the possibility before us. Uh, you know, whatever cards were dealt, how do we make it possible all the way to the end? Don't, you, don't we want to get like the, having these conversations as part of a standard medical protocol as much as, as, much as anything else is? I mean, yeah. we can, we can, patients can advocate exactly. as much as they want. But well, it's two things. Number one is, I mean, we can have that. I had that conversation with my dad. You can have that conversation with your own family. And then if you're clear about it, you can insist to people who are clinicians that this happens. But we're also actually right now um, uh, testing this approach at the Dana-Farber and the Brigham and Women's Hospital, where we, are, uh, we have boiled it down to a two-hour training for clinicians. We have um, the entire Dana-Farber participating in the trial. We're training half of the clinicians in, how to, in going through it, and half were not, and then following the patients. We just released the first results after one year of it, and 200 patients have died so far uh, after that program. The ones who were cared for by the people who were trained ended up with less anxiety, less depression. They had this conversation. Uh, they were much more likely to have this conversation with their clinician. It happened over 90% of the time. It, um, it occurred earlier at 150 days instead of at 60 days. And, um, uh, and it helped, and, and they, they reported a stronger bond with their clinician. So we have another year to go before we make sure that we can see whether they were less likely to get unwanted care and whether their level of peacefulness about how they came to the end of life was improved but we're already seeing signs that you can create it as a norm and expected part of care. Good, because it just seems a lot to put on patients. We all, patients already have to advocate so much you know, on their own that when you're dealing with the shock of your, your it diagnosis. To, it needs to be normal. Yeah. It needs to be a normal part of what we do and, and clinicians of all people should recognize we all have anxiety about these conversations, but we can make it normal. Hi, um, I'm in residency right now, um, and one of the questions I have for you is, how do you address situations where patients are nonverbal? They're not able to communicate to you their wishes. They're bedbound. They have been like that for many years, and the families, you know, insist of us doing everything we can. How do you, I guess, communicate with the families in a way where they don't feel coerced in a certain decision, but they they have to make a decision basically assuming what their loved one would want. Yeah, you're talking about the situation where, you know, where we failed to have that conversation. And, it, and at some level, it's painfully late. It's painfully too late. Um, and the, you know, so 70% of us will come to the end of our lives with someone else having to make that decision. And when people are put in that situation, it is incredibly stressful and anxiety-provoking because your deepest question as a family member is, am I being faithful? to this person and whatever it is we're making as a decision. And if you don't have guidance, it is very, very difficult. Um, the short answer ends up being trying to probe with them. You know, I have that same conversation with the family, that, you know, when, the, when, the, when, when you yourself can't speak for yourself. I'll say, well, what were their biggest fears and worries for the future? What were, what were their goals? What's your understanding of where they are with their condition? What would they be willing to sacrifice and not willing to sacrifice? And you do your best to get an idea of what that is. Um, but it is inevitably much more painful. You know, um, 
my colleague whose father said, I'd rather have chocolate ice cream and football on television above all. She was so glad she had that conversation because he ended up having to have emergency surgery where he had bleeding in his spinal cord that led to quadriplegia. And the question was, should they continue or should they not save him? And she could say to them, well, he may be quadriplegic when he comes out, but would he be able to eat chocolate ice cream and watch football on television? And they said, yes, he'd be able to do that. And so she said, okay, save him. And he was quadriplegic. But he was so glad. He, you know, her father was a professor. He continued to write several articles. He wrote a book. And then when he finally couldn't swallow anymore, he then refused a feeding tube. He refused water. He refused food. And he died five days later. It was a relief to her. And if she had not known that, no matter what decision she made, she would have been in pain. If she decided to let him go, she wouldn't have known if it was the right thing. And then deciding to save him. And he had a year of painful physical therapy, quadriplegic, and she would always be in doubt whether she had done the right thing by him. And so that's why I think it's so important what Meghna said, is you know, to, um, before crisis comes, especially with a family member who um, you, know, you know has frailties and issues that they're facing along the way. These are uh, not only important conversations they have, they're incredibly empowering. They help, they, you know, my, my mother's 79 now, it's four years since my father died, and we're having these conversations. And it's, they are the best conversations we've had, actually, as a child and parent. Well, the book is Being Mortal. Dr. Atul Gawande, what a pleasure. Thank you so very much. Thank, Thank you, you. This podcast was produced by The Drum, a literary magazine for your ears.